Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 22nd, 2017, guys. And it's a, it's a Wednesday. Now what does Wednesday mean? Wednesday means interview day, and we are going to have one of our frequent recurring guests back on the show. Gary Collins. Gary, of course, we've had on before to talk about his off-grid project while it was in progress. I don't know that your off-grid project is ever done, but his house is done. He's living there. He's off-grid. And he's got a new book out on the entire process. We're going to talk about going off-grid, what's it like, what makes you make the decision, what are the benefits, what are the challenges, his new book, and more. We'll have him on in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have three segments today in 1958, plus all the other stuff, the bullet points we usually have. Um, I have from Alex Shrugged, A Land to the East, A Shining Pan-Arab Republic. And I have from Alex Shrugged also, The U.S. Air Force Almost Nuked South Carolina and Georgia. I have the, cold, the Cod Wars. No, that's not a typo by Southpaw Ben. Notable, I'm not going to read all of the bullet points this year because there's just too many of them, but notable births this year. Mark Cuban, Bill Mays, who was the TV pitchman, right? Billy Mays, he died on, uh, in 2009 at age 50. Tim Kaine, U.S. Senator and uh, VP candidate with Hillary Clinton. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was born this year. Karen Pence, wife of VP Mike Pence and second lady of the United States, born this year. In entertainment, directors Christopher Columbus and Tim Burton. In music, Alan Jackson, Ice-T, Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Prince. That's a hell of a mix. Uh, Prince and Michael Jackson, of course, both have passed away. One at age 50, the other at 57. In comedy, Ellen DeGeneres, Drew Gary, and Jeff Foxworthy all born this year. Gary Oldman, The Fifth Element, Harry Potter, and The Prisoner of Azkaban is born this year. And Alec Baldwin of Beetlejuice, The Hunt for Red October, TV's 30 Rock, President Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, born this year. Here in film... Gigi, a young French girl, is trained to become a consort. Thank heaven for little girls is a popular song from that film. South Pacific, World War II in song. It doesn't have to make sense. It's a musical. No Time for Sergeants. Andy Griffith plays a country boy drafted in the Army. It's hilarious, says Alex Shrugged. And so says Jack Spierko. I, I remember that movie. I like that movie. B-movie horror films this year. 
The Fly, The Blob, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Return of the Fly, and Return of Frankenstein, but no return to sanity. I like those old B-movies. Um, I'm going to end the uh, bullet points on that note today, and you can check all of this stuff out by going to the TSP Wiki. Check out the year 1958. Link in today's show notes. Let's look at the U.S. Air Force dropping bombs on South Carolina and Georgia. No, I'm not kidding either. I knew, I knew about both of these. Um, Not too many people can say they've had a nuclear bomb dropped on them. Walter Gregg recalling the nuclear weapon that landed in his backyard. Luckily, the bomb is unarmed and it contains no fissionable material. FYI, even without the nuclear material inside, a nuclear bomb contains enough explosives to upset Aunt Jenny's Sunday picnic real good. You know what I mean? Although the Air Force claims that the bomb was released from 15,000 feet, residents say the B-47 Stratojet sounded like it was right on top of them. A six-kiloton nuclear package lands in the backyard of Walter Gregg, a railroad conductor. He is in his garage with his son making a bench. It's not clear what the Air Force has against railroad workers or handmade benches, but clearly they missed. All joking aside, what happened is that during the military exercise, the co-pilot realized the bomb was not properly secured. So he hit the button that would secure the bomb. It was the wrong button. Hal opened the pod bay doors and all hell broke loose. The bomb left the crater 75 feet wide and about 30 feet deep. People had cuts and bruises, but no one was killed. Greg and his family moved to Florence, and the hole remains. I think I'd move, too. My take by Alex Shrugged. Are we done yet? Heck no. On March 15th, hydrogen bomb is lost off of Tybee Island near Savannah, Georgia. Yet another B-20, B-47 Stratojet is carrying an honest-to-heavens live nuclear weapon. The Stratojet is involved in a mid-air collision with an F-86 fighter plane. The fighter pilot ejects. The Stratojet drops 18,000 feet. It could still fly, but no one knows for how long. In order to ensure that the B-47 doesn't blow up, killing the crew and everyone within 10 miles in the, of the landing strip, they drop the bomb into the drink. They search for it later, but they can't find it. In a report from 2001, the Air Force concluded that it is in the best interest of the public and the environment to leave the bomb in its resting place. There are times when it is forgivable to shout something vulgar, like when you hit your thumb with a hammer, when you slam your fingers in a car door, and when you lose a hydrogen freaking bomb. So the bomb is still out there? Yes, it is. Loud shouting may commence. Um, I don't know that it poses any risk where it's at. If, if, if our military from 1957 or 58 up to 2001 can't find it, I highly doubt anybody else is going to find it either. And I don't know that it would be very functional at this point, though it could certainly be used like terrorists to do a dirty bomb or something like that. I would think if technology ever evolves to the point where this thing can be found, um, it would be probably us with the technology to find it or some other nation that probably already had nuclear capability anyway. It is still kind of insane that they dropped by act well, one as an intentional thing to avoid accident, and the other by accident. Two freaking nuclear bombs in one year uh, on U.S. territory uh, due to, oops, sorry about that, uh, making one maybe feel a little bit better about ICBMs because uh, they have less propensity for that type of whoops, because uh, whoops with a nuclear bomb uh, quickly turns into, ah, oh, wow. Anyway, just my thoughts on that one.
Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, guys, I want to welcome uh, Gary Collins back to the Survival Podcast. Gary, man, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on, Jack. Hey, I'm glad to have you with us today. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, we, we've had you on before. We talked about your off-grid project while it was in progress. And I said during the intro, I don't know that your off-grid project or anybody's off-grid project is ever done, but like you've completed the major milestones now. You, you, you have a livable house and all. So we're going to be talking about that, what you learned along the way. But before that, for people that maybe are not familiar with you, can you just kind of talk about your background and how it led you to a place in life where, you know, living, living the off-grid dream is, uh, is something you're making come true? Yeah, my, my life is a little odd. So <laughs> it, it is probably best described for people who have never uh, heard of me. Um, but basically, I was in the federal government for half my life, military intelligence, uh, did that, and then went into federal law enforcement and was mainly uh, worked for Diplomatic Security Service State Department, traveled all over the world, and uh, got to see some interesting things and in how other cultures actually ate. And being a lifelong athlete, I started playing competitive ath athletics when I was seven. So from there on out, I'd been into athletics, health, nutrition, minored in health science in college, and uh, just this whole kind of progress and became a federal agent, and then went into U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a federal agent, and then finished with the Food and Drug Administration the last eight and a half years of my career. So I got to see this huge, wide scope of the government, but primarily I got to see the dynamic of our healthcare system pharmaceutical drug industry, food, uh, uh, you know, food systems and how that works. And it was quite an eye opener. So at the end, basically decided on a life change. Events happened. And I said, you know what? I'm burned out. I'm going to do something else. So I ended up going into health and started a company based on my experience as, you know, working with clients. I started working with clients in my 20s on the side. Um, and worked in various gyms over my life. So I kind of took that and started working with clients and started this business. Well, then it evolved into writing a program down. That turned into a book. That turned into a series, and that's where the Primal Power Method, my company, came from. That's the short of it. There's a whole lot of other stuff thrown in there in between, you know, personal health issues and m multiple surgeries and all kinds of stuff throughout life. Everyone thinks I have this perfect Came out of the womb healthy. I'm just like everyone else. I was a wreck. Had all kinds of issues. Thought I was doing it right. Had to completely turn my my paradigm of health upside down. And I learned a lot of it actually in the government by investigating um, a lot of holistic 
practitioners and uh, the organic food industry was kind of a, a thorn in the side because it was catching momentum. So the FDA really didn't like a lot of organic companies. You know how that goes. Uh, it's the government. Uh, who He who has the most money wins. Yeah. So, you know, the major food industry. And the government always has more money. <laughs> yeah, because we give it to them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The yeah. irony of that. We give it to them so they can screw us with our own money. It's beautiful. Um, so I kind of learned that, and, um, and I started reading the material. And I was like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Some of these holistic practitioners aren't exactly saints either. I mean, I was investigating some pretty dirty ones. and But a lot of the material made sense. And I was like, oh, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. And that pushed me into a primal paleo world without even knowing it. I, I ended up basically in that philosophy without even knowing it existed. And kind of that's where the company went. So I started, called it the Primal Power Method. It had a different name in the beginning. This has been, I think I started originally five and a half, six years ago. It's been a while. and But the Primal Power Method is the most modern version of what I'm doing. But not only health, my company, as I go through life and I'm trying to improve my life and make it simpler and better, it's kind of this journey. So it's turned into a more of a, a life simplification, uh, life improvement kind of self-help kind of journey is where it's going. It, it seems to be where it's going for me. So there's different stages of it and going off the grid actually started before this company. I started looking into it. About 10 years ago, I grew up in a very small rural area of California. People are shocked to hear that, but I grew up one stoplight, 2,000 people. That was my town out in the middle of nowhere, yeah, the least densely populated county in, in all of California. So I grew up in the mountains, grew up kind of, you know, redneck, poor, poor redneck, and, uh, you know, put myself through college and all that good stuff. And so that dream would to get back to that had always kind of been there, but I just didn't know what I wanted. I didn't want to return to where I grew up. I was looking for something else. And that's kind of where the project began 10 years ago. I was living in New Mexico and I have, I still have land in New Mexico. I started looking Colorado, parts of New Mexico, Utah, and then I ended up in Washington state later on. And just through traveling through the country through work, I'd seen a lot and I was trying to piece what was Gary's place. And it ended up being Northeast Washington. Uh, that was just the best place for me where I fit in. So I ended up, you know, investigating into land. The, the boom was going on. Land was stupid expensive. So I kind of shelved it and said, you know what? I, I can't afford 150 grand for five acres right now, you know, of dirt, of crappy dirt at that. Yeah. Let me figure this thing out. And so time went on and some life events happened and I started downsizing, sold my house, Ended up in a small cottage, bought a travel trailer, ended up moving in the travel trailer. So I went through these events, and in between, I found 20 acres in northeast Washington. Um, so some people have asked, they go, well, gosh, you know, how'd you, you know, how'd you do this so quickly? I go, I didn't do this quickly. It's a decade <laughs> of, 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 of planning and figuring and false starts and trying to figure it out. Because I think the TV shows, as we've talked about, um, you know, glorify off the grid homesteading and, and it's not that way. The people who've done it know it just, you don't do it overnight. It, it's, it takes several, several years to get it going. But yeah, so I ended up buying a, 
piece of raw land with nothing on it on the top of a hill and uh, got a good deal on it, bought 20 acres and uh, just started building it. Uh, luckily, I'd, I'd built two other houses and I'd owned properties and my side business was real estate. So I wasn't a total amateur, but I was no expert by any stretch either. And I'd never build anything off the grid. Totally different animal, totally different set of rules. Everything's different. So let's talk about like the why of the off-grid thing because, I mean, part of it may have been just, you know, where you found the land that you could afford, maybe that just made more sense. But it sounds like you had a desire to be off the grid even if you didn't have to. What was the the, the, the thing? Because it, part of what makes what you did so difficult is being off-grid. If you have yeah. grid access, you want to build an energy-efficient house, you can call a contractor, boom, there's a house, boom, there's and you're up and you're going. And everything works. So what, what made was it? Desire for self-sufficiency, independence? Uh, was it just uh, something that you've always wanted? What, what made you go that route? You know, it was I, – I, I blame California. Okay. <laughs> That's what I do. Growing up here and then uh, I lived in Southern California for several years of my government career to include the military. So California, anyone who's lived here or been here, everything is stupid expensive. Everything's overregulated. Everything's a pain in the ass. There's people everywhere. And it just kind of wears you down. And for me, and living in other states, I'd lived in, I think I've lived in nine states at this point in my life. I knew there was a better way. And I think for me, I got sick of dealing with increasing electric bills, water bills. I mean, it's not unheard of for my friends out here during the summer who own pools and have big houses to have a $600 to $1,000 electric, gas, and water bill. So, yeah, try that one on. That's more than most people's house payments in the country. So just kind of seeing that and kind of seeing where the country was going, I'd always liked the off-the-grid just because of the independence. It, it was freedom is how I looked at it. I went, I, I, no one can tell me what to do. I can run my, you know, I can run my lights all day long if I have the power and it doesn't matter. I can, you know, push my hose out in the front yard and turn the water on and no one's going to be able to complain. You know, so that's kind of about it too because with the watering restrictions, I mean, just the stupidity of California. We uh, were in a drought. Now we're getting flooded yet again because um, I'm in California right now. And they're doing nothing and, to retain uh, that water and put it somewhere. You know, Imagine if they had spent the last five years of drought building cisterns. Oh, no, this has been going on for 20, 30 oh, years. Oh, yeah, I know. This, I know. Yeah, this is the stupid – well, I shouldn't say stupid. The corruptness of the California government is we don't collect – anywhere near the amount of water we need to collect to solve the problem. And we don't solve the problem because without the problem, they can't make us pay more, basically. So the utility companies are in on it. The water districts are in on it. The unions are in on it. Everyone's in on it. Everyone makes money off it except for the citizens of California. <laughs> you know, the, the working people of California get the screw job. And that is primarily the middle class. So with that, too, is uh, in the house that I got rid of, the last uh, house that I owned in San Diego, we were in a severe drought. So we had all these water restrictions and you could get turned in if anyone saw you wa washing your car, uh, you know, you're watering your lawn on the wrong day. It was just a fiasco. So we did such a good job, though. All California, we all pitched in and we cut, you know, I, you know, like a. Uh, I, you know, I'd not flush the toilet. I'd let my pee sit all day, the whole bit. 
did everything. Low flow toilets, shower heads, did all of it. Well, our award was a nice, I think is a 25, 30% increase in water prices. That was our award for conserving water because now the water companies, utility companies couldn't make enough money. The water districts, so the water districts were now losing money because we oh. did such a good job of conserving oh, yeah. in a drought. Yeah. That is how screwed up California is. I kid you not. And that was kind of the last straw for me. I was pissed. I went, wait a second. I sacrifice. I do everything you tell me to do, and you screw me. The, the, my reward is you just screw me. Oh, okay. Sounds great. So that was kind of part of it, too. I went, I never want to be in a situation like this again. And the way I grew up, I grew up pretty close to off the grid. We had, you know, our own septic system. We had our own well. The only thing we were tied to was electricity. We had our, you know, we ran propane through a propane tank. So we were pretty much off the grid growing up. So it wasn't that unique to me. The uniqueness part was the, the, the power side and also the property, what kind of spurred it to us. I looked into power because then I could have gotten a construction loan which would have made the project go a lot faster, uh, was 80 grand to run power. Mm. And it was, I would have to run it above ground and get permission from all the properties a mile and a half away to stick power poles through their, through their property, which was never going to happen. So the off the grid solidified itself. It was like, well, even if I thought I wasn't going to do it, I was going to do it. And I'm glad I did. Um, it's been quite a learning curve, but with the technology today and the way everything works, you can live pretty comfortably, and it's not nearly as expensive as it used to be. It's expensive, don't get me wrong, but overall, it's affordable. I mean, you can make it work, and I'm just running solar right now. I'm going to be putting a wind turbine in, hopefully this summer if all goes well. Um, I won't use any hydro. I don't have any water uh, running water near me. So I'll be using wind and and uh, solar because I'm in northeast Washington. People are puzzled by that, too. I'm right on the Idaho border. So it's not like it's not western Washington where it rains every other day. I have a lot of sunlight and I'm in a good area for solar. So it, it, it all works out. Very cool, man. So what made you decide when you when you embarked on this that you're also going to, you know, write a book about it? Because that adds work to work. Oh, I, well, anyone who knows me just knows I like to punish myself for some reason. But no, it's uh, I started doing the project, and this is something, like I said, I was doing anyway. This was before my business was born. It was before everything. And so what happened was I started telling people what I was doing, and I think I even talked about it on a couple podcasts. Well, people were hitting me up. They're all, hey, wait a second. I'm interested in that. How are you doing it? How did you find your land? And I, I got in so much interest, I went, I better start documenting this. I better start writing this down. And that's where I started piecing it together and started with YouTube videos from the very beginning and then started documenting on the blog and writing everything down. So that's where the book came from because I just didn't know that people were actually very interested in it. Um, as you know me, Jack, I, I do things and I don't even know they're a trend sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I just do it. I, I live in Gary's world. I just do. <laughs> and everyone who's been around me knows it. Who's grown up with me knows Gary does his own thing and he just figures it out and, uh, not realizing that it was becoming more popular. 
and the shows were starting to pop up. So I went, heck, you know, um, I'm going to put a book together, but instead of just writing a book, you know, a research book that's pretty dry, which I don't like anyway, I decide, you know, let's turn my story and a how-to all-in-one. Because I have experience building, too. It's not like I don't have experience building houses. I've dealt with that. I've done a lot of home improvement. I've remodeled and gutted houses. So I have a little bit of a little bit of everything in there. And that's where it took off. And, and so far, people have said that is, they go, this is the most complete book of anyone trying to do this that they've ever found or read. Because there's a not very many. I think there's a handful of them at best. I mean, I'm on Amazon. And I'm already the first book. If you put going off the grid, I'm the first book listed. And I haven't sold a million copies by any stretch. But it's just amazing that how small that genre is. Even though it's getting very popular. It's all over TV shows. It's just there's not very many how-to or stories about it. I think one reason for that is that there is no specific formula In other words, like if you're going to wire a house for AC grid, there's a formula, and every builder in America uses that formula. I don't care if they're a custom builder. I don't care if they're a production builder. The basic way that we build a house in America is formulaic. When it goes to off-grid, well, it gets confusing fast because, well, are you in a northern climate or a southern climate? Because if you're in a southern climate you better be building an earth contact stretch, uh, structure because you ain't going to run an AC with it and you're going to die in July, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. if, you're, if you're where you are, you're, you're not using hydro, but if there was a creek on your property, you damn well would. So oh, it gets, yeah. there's a lot of moving parts to it, so it gets harder and harder to pin down to here's the formula in the minds of most people. But I think in the end, well, you still build the house the same way. You build it to the climate. And then the only thing that really changes, okay, do you have solar, do you have wind, do you have hydro, you know, are you are you a hybrid? Like a lot of people, they'll find out, well, oh, I can get grid power here for a grand. Okay, well, I'm going to do that, but I'm still going to have off-grid capability. So, yeah. but in the end, knowing things like the shit you went through with your contractor, right? Oh, I think yeah. that alone could save people thousands of dollars, type one errors, and, and, and hundreds of hours, you know? Well, and, and that's the, the reaction I've gotten back from the people who've read it. They go, God, the contractor chapter alone is worth, worth the price of the book. And I got a little heat in the beginning from that because what I did is I actually uh, had the rough draft and I kicked it to a couple people and said, hey, does this make sense to you? You know, is the book, if you were going to interested in something and going off the grid, is this something that makes sense? And then, well, the contractor section not realizing one's husband was a contractor who I kicked it to. And then the other one had family members who were contractors. Yeah. And so they took it a little negatively, and I went, well, wait, wait, wait. I went, you got – I've been dealing with contractors for 20 years. I'm not putting anything in there that I think is out of bounds or off base. I went, this is all personal experience. I've, I've I know friends who build houses for a living. I have many friends who are contractors who I'd never let step foot in my house to do anything, who I grew up with. I go and I and I go right back to I go, if you think I'm being harsh, go read and listen to what Adam Carolla says about contractors. He was one before he became famous. Yeah. Most people don't know that. Adam Carolla was a certified contractor in California. You listen to what he says and I come off you know like an angel. 
I mean, he, I just read it. I have his newest book and he has two page rant in there on contractors that basically, uh, it basically it says everything I said in my chapter with harsher. And in dealing with contractors, is, that's a good point. You've dealt with them too. Oh my God. Off, yeah. Oh yeah. We all have off the grid <laughs> is a nightmare because these guys will tell you anything. You know, the, the guy I hired to build the house said, oh, yeah, I've been doing green building for years. I know it inside. And the guy didn't know shit. He was clueless. He just wanted to get the job and try and rape me. That's all he wanted to do, you know, in the end. So even with my experience, these guys are slick. And that's why I wrote that chapter and I put so much detail in it is even if you've been dealing with these guys. Heck, I know contractors who have had contractors come in and do work for them in their own house. And been ripped off. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Here's the thing: I'm not saying all contractors suck. No. I'm saying that many contractors suck, and all contractors have the propensity to suck. And, and the reason is they all have to take as much work as they can when they can get it. So they get very afraid to turn down work, and it's just like you know when you're having a shitty day. It, you, you never have one shitty thing go wrong. Like It all comes at once. And there's so many things in life like that. So these guys are always taking more work than they can handle, or they have no work. right? And then they're always trying to keep, keep employees, which is difficult in that market, because they go through those fluctuations. And then they're getting your money to do your job. But what they're really doing is they're getting your money to do the last job. And if they don't get another job you know, after yours then they don't have money to do your job because they just spent your money on the next job. Because they run their operations like a Ponzi scheme because in some instances they have to. And, and we had a guy here that got in a bind when he did my kitchen remodel. And he, he I, I finally like laid the smack down on him. I'm, I'm going to sue your freaking ass. And he's like, you know, it'll cost you more to sue me than the four grand we're still lacking on the job. I'm like, no, it won't. This is Tarrant yeah, County, dude. I can see you in Small Cranes Court for 50 bucks. And by the way, you have to show up or they'll come get your ass and you have to bring an attorney and I don't. So then he goes out and gets a personal loan to cover the, the cost of finishing the job, right? And he, he tells me this like he's done me a favor. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I don't give a shit. I already gave you my money, you know? And then after this is all over, he says, now if you need anything else, I'll give you a good deal. <laughs> I mean, the arrogance. And then I've had other contractors, they come yeah. in, they do every freaking thing perfectly. But I've almost in every interaction had points where if I hadn't been on it, it wouldn't have been done perfectly. There's, you know, something gets half-assed. I've had guys that are more like handyman level contractors, you give them projects. They do four projects, bang on, and then they go off the reservation on the fifth one. Yeah. Yeah. You have They're to treat a contractor like an employee. You know? I, I say you have to treat them like a five-year-old kid. It's maybe more uh, like I, a slave. Well, literally, <laughs> and, and, and that's why I was kind of you know miffed when the people came back. Then I went, okay, they're in the contracting world. It may have rubbed them a little raw. But I go for the average person who has to deal with them. I went, I'm being, I'm being very truthful. And I went, there's, there's TV shows built upon bad contractors. Adam Carolla, yet again, did to catch a contractor. Oh yeah. He would, yeah, I mean that show was brutal. I only watched two of them because it was so painful. I went, I've been through this. I can't watch any more of these. I went, this is too too close to to home for me. But yeah, it, and the mistake I made, I broke one of my own rules, which was not being there enough. 
because I got busy. I was up there. I was redoing my business. I was transferring everything from California to Washington. You know, I was becoming a rep, doing all this stuff. And the guy took full advantage, just a typical contractor. Once he smelt I wasn't around, yeah, he just went off the rails. He well, started I mean, off I mean, the other thing is, right, great. part of it is if they're stretched in and they got more than one job, if the other guy is there and you ain't, right, and that guy's, that guy's me and I'm breathing in his shit saying you're going to get this done and you're not there, well, you know, who, who's he going to take care of? He's going to take care of me. And, yeah. and you got to know this when you're dealing with contractors and, like, My wife's always like, you're such an asshole. And I'm like, in some instances, that's what's required. Yes. And I hate to be that way. And you know what? When I get a guy doing a good job, I'm not. But I expect well, every single thing they do. You don't close something up till I look at it. And I know you yeah. had a problem that kind of related right to that type of thing. Yeah. And well, and he made me, that's what I spent all last summer doing. I spent five months, 10, 12 hour days fixing all of his shit. And I, I trust me, when you're out, it's 100 degrees out, and you're pissed, and I'm sitting there staring at all his screw-ups, and I'm having to fix them mostly myself because they became so expensive. And not only that, but an off-the-grid project's hard to get people to show up because contractors aren't familiar with it, and it's not a big job for them, you know, because off-the-grid's usually a smaller project. So even to get someone to show up to do the work is really difficult because they're like, I, 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 you know, you're not, I'm not going to make enough money off this. Why, you know, I'll take another job instead of this. And I got to travel all the way up a hill and four wheel drive and I got to haul materials and it gets, that's the off the grid thing becomes very difficult. And I, I explain in the book too that, hey, you're going to have to be way more involved than you ever anticipated if you're going to go this route because there are no contractors out there who will show up and go, oh yeah, I've built 50 off the grid homes. You're going to be lucky to find one that's built one, <laughs> let alone a track of them. And I still have yet to find a guy who's built off-the-grid homes. That's what they do. I, to this day, I've yet to find one. Well, there's only so I, many to get built, right? And that just then it gets divided yeah. up against the people that want to do the work because 99% of homes that are built today are on-grid homes. So oh, yeah. that's yeah. what you're going to get more opportunities to do. And there's no, I guess there might be, I'm going to say there's no, because that's not right. But there's, there's not like anybody's developing off-grid communities the way that they do on-grid communities. What I mean by that is it, here we have, we're kind of back into a boom because the economy is so good in Texas. So a, a company will buy 50 acres and start building suburban communities there. And, you know, they put the signs out, they put up model houses, come pick your house, pick your colors, we'll have a house for you in six months, or sometimes they'll have a house for you in two months, depending on how construction's going. And so there's this kind of, like, there's all types of contractors involved in doing those building, right? So it's even if it's yep. like a big company, like a well-known development company, they don't employ all those people. So those guys have all that type of experience with they come in and do the framing and they go away. And then tomorrow they do framing and they get, they get that repeat experience of doing that one piece. They're a drywall contractor. They're a roofing contractor. They're an electrical contractor. They're a plumbing contractor. And there's just no... There's no factory-like production environment for off-grid housing at this time that gives people that kind of you know, on-the-go experience. And if you're a contractor doing that, and I'm a framing contractor, and I have like five guys working for me, and one of them doesn't show up, I can go pick somebody up, and as long as he can hold the board straight, right, he can learn to become a framer in a couple weeks. 
Maybe not a good one, maybe not a crew leader, but he can be useful to the crew. If I'm putting in a specialized SIP or something like that, I can't just go replace the people that do know what they're doing the way they can in you know this typical construction world. No, and, and, and for me, it made it even harder because I, up there we have a six-month building season. So from April oh, to yeah. basically August, September, everyone's taken. So you're, you're kind of trying to piece together a crew to begin with just to find someone who's available. And I found them. I mean, I have a good crew now. Um, you know, I have helpers that come help me and I do a lot of the work myself now, the much as I can. And, uh, but yeah, it, it's such a different world of you need a guy like my handyman works for a constru uh, construction company, a small one in Washington and Idaho, but he has multi talents. So he knows how to do many things. And that's kind of the guy you need. You need a guy that's kind of a jack of all trades. He's not necessarily an expert, but he's a framer by, by background, but he knows a lot of other stuff. Like me and him can hang drywall. You know, we can do basic electrical and, and do some simple stuff. So that's kind of the guy you need too that helps is if you can grab one guy who can do a little bit of everything to help you, that's, that's golden. That's going to be your main go-to guy. Now, now I do have special, specialty guys. I do have an electrician. I do have a plumber, so uh, you know a, a heating and cooling guy. You know, so I have these people in place that I'm using, but I have to use them when they're available. Yeah, it's not my schedule. Yeah, so that delays your project even more because they're and they're putting your project in, and the only way I can get these guys to even show up and do my jobs is I pay them cash. That's the only way, you know, because otherwise, it's like I said, the jobs are too small. It's not worth it to them. So if I pay them cash, um, they like that. You know, it's it's quick done. They don't. There's no financing. There's no bank. Yeah. You know, as soon as the job's done, I pay them. But I don't pay them anything up front either, though, because I provide all the materials. Yeah, that's they the way you got to do it. You, you, you you I need money for materials. No, you don't. Yeah, I'm done with that. I'll even say, they say, well, I I need to do the takeoff and I need to do the estimate. And you know what? Tell you what, dude. You, you charge me whatever you want for labor, including your time to do that. You give me a list of materials. I'll call up Lowe's, Home Depot, whoever, and I'll have it delivered. It'll be sitting here for the day that you show up. You don't need my money. Well, you know, I'll bring it with me. You know what? They deliver for 65 bucks, man. I'll cover that. I, I'm good. Because I'm, well, I'm done handing people money in advance. Oh, me too. And the problem I had by being, and anyone see my property, for the money that I paid for, I mean, I paid 23 grand or 22.5 for 20 acres. That's great. A stupid price. I mean, that, that was the lowest by any stretch. And I have these beautiful, amazing views. I mean, million dollar views. But the downside is it's a bitch to get to. And I can't even have materials delivered because it ain't getting there. It's four wheel drive up and that's a normal truck. Yeah. That's not, you know, uh, uh, you know, with a flatbed and hauling stuff up. So I hand carry every material has been hand carried up there. So that's another thing if you're going to go off the grid. you got to decide how remote do you want to be, what topography do you want to live in. You know, I, I was going for the views. This was my dream house. This was my last hoorah unless I win the lottery or something. You know, I, I'm not going to build another one more than likely. So this was it. So I wanted the views. That was my main key is I wanted, you know, peace and happiness, isolation and views. That was my thing. So, but with that made the building process probably four or five times more difficult because now it's really difficult. Now I've got to get stuff up there. I got to figure out how big, 
what's the biggest piece of material that I can get up there realistically without using a helicopter? I mean, I could have built a, a cabin, but I would have had to have all of it brought in by a helicopter. Jeez. I don't think we would have ever been able to get through my last jackknife up there. I don't think we could have got this stuff up there. We would have had to have a dozer and towed everything up. Every truck would have had to have been dragged up because that's what I did. I dragged the drilling rig. Maybe that's why you got such a good price. <laughs> well, and that's why. It was an old logging site, and no one could see the potential in the property. And it's the only buildable lot really buildable lot in my huge track. There's a huge track of uh, 20 acre and 10 acre properties up there. But mine was the only one that you realistically could build on. Then you're not going to have a lot of neighbors, And so now good. I have the road and it's not a, it's not an easement road. So the road's dead end on my property. So no one's going to be getting anything up there, you know, unless they fly it up. So there's not going to be any more wells drilled that I can see. And actually, they're tapping. They're actually getting ready. I talked to a friend. They're starting to turn down well drilling applications for really? for wells. So I've been told when I was drilling mine by the company I used, they the guy said he goes, "Hey, he goes, you're drilling at the right time because it's coming down the pike that they're going to actually restrict uh, well drilling for just normal residential." So the value went, of your property is going to be a hell of an ROI in the long run. It will, and, and it's going to be a unique property, and anyone see it too. I got a, you know, it's it's huge. I mean, the, it's not a big house, but it's really tall to take advantage of these views. You know, I put in a third story deck, so I have a loft, and I stuck a deck outside the loft, and that's like twenty plus feet off the ground, and it is cool. You can see everything, everything from there. So it's those little things that I'm doing, and you know, making it comfortable. So, you know, you're not going to struggle. You're not going to be pooping in a bucket, in a hole. There's normal plumbing. There's normal water. You know, it's going to be hot water. There's heating. I do not have central cooling. And that's another thing off the grid. More than likely, you never will. Unless you have a lot of money to build, put into your solar system. You can run it now. But yeah. you're looking probably 50 to 55 grand yeah. to set up your solar system, be able to handle an air conditioning unit. And that's but for you. I, <laughs> And where I'm at, it's not that hot. And not only that, yeah. but during the summer, we realized, because I did get the solar system fully approved. I mean, fully approved by the county. All my tickets are signed off. It's done, which was an amazing process in its own, because I know I'm one of the few people who have done it that way. But you, I have enough power during the middle of the day at the hottest where I can run a portable air conditioner. No big deal. Upstairs. I only need it upstairs. I don't need it downstairs. So, you know, you can make it work. I mean, it's it's not that big of a struggle anymore, and I think that's a misconception people have too. They think of the Unabomber living in a shack, basically, or you know, living in a yurt. And don't get me wrong, you live in a yurt, but I don't know anyone who's go priced yurts. Yurts aren't cheap. They're not nearly as cheap as what people think they are. No. And they're a tent. It's yeah. a round friggin' tent. That's all it is. So, what kind I, of construction would you recommend? What would be your go-to at this point? Uh, I talk about all different types. I talk because I researched all of them, and that's what made the book kind of unique too is I just didn't find a track and just tunnel vision in on it. I actually, every decision, I researched basically every type, you know, like my septic. I looked at pressure systems. I looked at where I could put it. I looked at gravity fed. I looked at everything, and I said, do I need to be an above-ground one with a, they call it like the molehill, 
and I'm all, you know, I looked at everything. So I talk about all that in the book, but construction wise, again, it depends, but the easiest I think right now is a cabin kit because those seem to be very affordable at this point if you have a company near you that's doing them. I have a friend who got a 1100 square foot cabin and it was $40,000 for the kit. Now that didn't include obviously bringing in a general contractor and putting it all together and then she has uh she also has a basement that she put she's in a, in Idaho she's in a, about 15 minutes away from me. We actually grew up together. Funny story. You know, I go all this way to Washington, I end up next town over to me as a family. I grew up up the street from me in my small town in California. So she did it, and but that it was in the end. I'm gonna go up and see it. I've only seen pictures, but I'm gonna go see it uh, in April when I get back up. But I think that makes the most sense if you can swing it. Um, it's very efficient. The downside is you're in the forest, so if there is a fire, it's made of wood. Yeah, it's gonna burn down. Yeah, that's the bottom line. My place is fireproof. That's where a lot of my stuff changed. As I was like, okay, I, I'm, I, I've lived in Southern California in wildfires a large part of my life. New Mexico had wildfires. I'm all, you know, I want the thing to be fireproof. That was my biggest thing. And plus, you're off the grid. There ain't no fire truck getting up to me anytime soon to put the thing out. No. So, yeah, that's another thing you got to factor in. Yeah, I so, mean, when I lived in Arkansas, dude, we had this idiot down the road. And I think if he would have done it a third time, he might have gotten shot that twice started fires. Oh. And the only thing that saved the whole mountain and everybody's houses, there was a guy that lived out there that owned a bulldozer. Uh, he would do our, our road grading and stuff for us, and he immediately jumped on his bulldozer and just, no approval, no nothing, just started pushing fire breaks in. Oh, and it man. took the fire department, and we were not, we're not like you. We were 15, it was, if, if there was normal roads, it was 10 minutes from downtown um, Hot Springs. Realistically, it was 20, 25 minutes. It took the fire department about two hours to get there. Everything would have been completely toasted, but because he was there and because he immediately just, if, there, if it started moving one way, he just started opening shit up. Uh, he, that guy, like, he had massive social capital, right? He basically saved the whole damn mountain. Yeah, and that's the the fear. The more remote you live, especially for me, I wanted to be in the forest. I wanted. I grew up in the mountains, but I grew up in the high desert, which is a totally different, you know, the topography, a different kind of environment. So I wanted to live in, in a forest environment. And with that, though, forest fires. We've already had two big ones up there that got pretty close. I mean, my whole one uh, summer, I was smoked in two, three months out of the summer. It was nothing but smoke. So I, you know, when I'm there and I'm looking, I'm going, thank God I thought this through, you know, because, you, you know, yeah, your insurance will cover it. But again, you're off the grid to rebuild your house. going to take you three to five more years again. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, so it's there's a lot to it. You're, you're right. There's so many moving parts that I would say if you can get a big enough fire break and be smart about it, I think a cabin is a really neat way to go. If not, I like my, the way I went, which was with an ICF, which is an insulated concrete form. Basically, it's a Lego Lego log, log made of 85% wood chips, 15% uh, concrete. And they stick them in these forms, and they're highly insulated, so they've got a really good insulation value. Then they stick three inches of foam to the outside wall. 
So on the inside of every brick has three inches of foam insulation in it. And you just stack them. They're mortarless. You actually put them together with spray foam. And then you fill, you rebar it. And then you fill them in with concrete just like normal cinder block. So far, when I got, uh, when I left last summer, or the end of the, it was going into uh, fall, it was still kind of warm. We were going through a little warm stretch. Well, I didn't have any window coverings up. I covered all the windows up for, with uh, paper and stuff for the season. And I'll tell you what, it was really nice inside that house. I was shocked at the temperature that it stayed at because of the insulation value of that product. And not only that, again, it's fireproof. The downside is, and it, it's called Baswall. It's not the only manufacturer. I think it's Fox uh, Brick or Fox Block is another one. I think there's like three companies that build it, that manufacture this stuff through the U.S. The problem is there's very few people that install it. You can do it yourself. It is a DIY, but, you know, my my house is tall. I didn't have the ability to go up 20 feet on my own. I just didn't. I wasn't willing to, to do that. Um, but you can do it yourself, and they have great instruction manuals. Uh, I've seen people who have done it themselves. I've seen the videos, watched them do it. Uh, I wish my contractor would have watched those first because obviously <laughs> he didn't pay attention. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a good product. It's a little pricier than Cinder Block. I think I paid, oh gosh, was it 14 I want to say $14 a brick. Maybe it was $11. And they'll deliver it. It's made in Oregon, and you just they'll ship it to you on a truck. And they'll deliver it. Unfortunately, I couldn't get delivered. I had to haul it all up there. So it is. I think that's a good one. I think it's a really good way because it's already insulated. You're getting the insulation value automatically. Um, I'm not a big fan of of straw insulated construction. I've known people who have done it, and it, it's not cheap. It actually ends up being very expensive if you're doing it to code. Here, see, here's that other caveat. I'm doing everything to code. I went and got building permits. I'm doing. Everyone knows what I'm doing in the town. Is that Mo because you had to? Was it because to protect your resale value? Is it because it was a personal decision? Why is that? Well, there was multiple. One legal. Um, they know what you're doing now. So if you think you're just going to throw a structure up and they're not going to figure it out, you're dreaming. I've had my property now reassessed three times already. In three years, <laughs> they reassess me every year. They walk right on my property. They know exactly where it is. They go around all my security fences. They hike up the road because they can't get their car up there. They want their money. And that's the way it is now. So if you, like I said, if you think you're going to hide something, good luck and they're going to come out and then you're going to pay a penalty. If it's not up to code and you're doing some, you know, some redneck construction, which I've done. You're going to end up paying for it in the in, in in the long run. Not only that, but it was it was resale, and I wanted my owner occupancy certificate so I could get an equity line on it. So if I wanted to draw for a project, I had an equity line. Not that I would use it, but it's there. It's there. It's well, I mean, a lot of people have mortgages. I do, and, and what yeah. you're doing, it's hard to get a mortgage, but you can get it there, and then you can uh, you can improve it, and basically, it's like it's like a back way into a mortgage. Kind of, and I think it will get there, and that's one thing I did learn. I have a whole chapter on financing. Like I said, I, I think I cover A to Z in my book as far as the whole process and just construction in general, but I talk about 
how I thought, well, there's got to be a bank out there somewhere. I'm a veteran. There's got to be something. There is nothing. <laughs> you are not financing an off-the-grid house. The only way you can get financing is to have power and, and utilities ran to the property. That is yeah. the only way you're getting it financed. Yeah, so, I, I, let me real quick, like, a yeah, little anecdote on that. It, it, financing is so difficult with anything that doesn't fit the sticks and bricks square house model. When we were looking to move back to here from Arkansas, we found this house, and I couldn't believe the price. It was like $275. It had been on the market a while. I knew we could get the price down. We started talking to them. We didn't do a formal offer, but we kind of did the whole, like, $250-ish. Yeah, you know, we'd probably do it. And, and we're, we're looking at doing this, and then my agent's like, we, we can never get an appraisal on this house. I'm like, what the hell do you mean? And Well, it was basically a dome house. Oh. And I'm looking at the kitchen in this house, and I'm going, if I built that kitchen, I'd spend $70,000 to build the kitchen in this house. And I could get this house for a quarter million dollars with seven and a half acres, and I can't buy it, and they can't sell it, because since it was a dome house... None of the appraisers would touch it. You can't get an appraisal from an approved appraiser you, because they said we can't find an equivalent house to compare it to. Well, not only that, it's but I wonder. It's round versus square. Get the square footage, work it up, you know, and it would have appraised probably if they did it by the formula and just said, well, it's round. Okay. Probably would have appraised that around $400,000. So yeah, well, you, you got to really think about what you're doing here. And I think that's why it's good that your stuff's all permitted and all, because even though you couldn't get a mortgage to build it, when you're done, if you decide for some reason you want to sell it, somebody will be able to get a mortgage to buy it. They should be able to. And that's the thing, because I'm doing it right. Everything's permitted. Everything's done. And because, uh, I mean, the house is off the grid in Hawaii. I mean, there's a lot of houses that are off the grid in Hawaii because they're out in lava flows. I mean, there, there's no power out there. And so it's not that it hasn't been done, but you have to have that owner occupancy certificate. And actually, I talk about that, too. I talk about a whole chapter of permits, codes, what you need to do. And they're changing so quickly that if I started my house today on the same property, I would have to jump through several more hoops than I did just three, three and a half years ago when I broke ground. It's changing that quickly. And these counties, and they're getting pissy. They don't like people living off the grid and not paying the same amount as everyone else. The utility companies don't like it. it there's a whole little battle going on, and I've talked to people about um, – because you can go off-grid kind of in, in normal residential and still be tied to the grid, but all that's changed too because now the power companies used to be able to sell the power back that you weren't using through your solar system. My old landlords went through this. Well, the power companies are saying now, no, you use whatever you're producing that during the day that you don't use of ours is fine, but any excess, too bad, buddy. We're taking it. It's ours. You sign in, and now the contracts say that you do not have the ability to sell back to the utility companies that they get that power for free, Yeah, basically. And that's all changed, and it, I, it's not everywhere, but California is a big one because the utility companies were losing money. So now to put that solar system up, even though it's cheaper, it's still 35 to 40 grand on average because you go into a city, it's totally different than if you go off grid and go do it yourself. The prices are totally different. Mine was 15 grand with the batteries, everything, but I only had six panels. But I'm not running as much. 
but so yeah, it's it, it's getting really really complicated, and I even have a, a chapter about water rights because water rights are getting to be a big deal, and I know neighbors who are fighting each other over creeks running through properties because one diverts the one the one above them diverts it from the guy below. The guy below was using hydropower. Now he's pissed because now he's got no power because dipshit above him diverted the creek. <laughs> and it, it, that's what I mean. You have to really think about everything you're doing. And people think I fly by the seat of my pants a lot. I do and I don't. I'm, I'm a pretty organized, pretty anal guy. I don't jump into anything just with blinders on. Uh, when I jumped into this, I had a, I had a plan. And I thought it through for several years. And I think that's the thing that those TV shows glorify is, you know, like the teeny home movement. You know, just put a, a shed on wheels and just go move it somewhere, and that's freedom. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, I mean, yeah, go. Sp this one just about drove me, and the millennials are doing this in droves. Yeah. And I want to talk some sense into these people because it's a huge mistake. This this 20-something couple, freshly married, spends $120,000 on a friggin' teeny home that's like 150 square foot. Yeah. They're yeah. towing it with their Subaru, you know, trying to get it out to wherever they're going. And they're all, oh, all the freedom. We're so happy. I went, freedom? 120 grand? Are you kidding? You just set yourself back 10 years. You by could, you could buy a friggin' uh, badass fifth wheel plus a new diesel truck. And oh, if and you bought a toy over. hauler, you could throw one of them stupid little smart cars in the back of it for running around in for the money they spent on some of these teeny homes. Well, and that's what I, I, I had a, I put in there, too, and people think I'm so negative on teeny homes. I go, I have to differentiate. I'm a big fan of a permanent teeny home on a property that yeah. you do yourself. or you build, I, I'm, all, I'm a huge fan. That's what I was originally going to do, but I knew that. I only had one building site, so I kind of had to change my plans. If I had multiple places I could build on my property, I would have built a teeny home first. But I had one place to build. That was it. As soon as I stuck something on there, that space was taken. So I said, I'm going to build it a little bigger. Uh, it's still only – it's less than 1,100 square feet. It's not huge. Um, but, yeah, the ones on wheel – I go – I'm on my third travel trailer. I love travel trailers. You could buy an RV like John Madden drives around in for 120 grand. You know that's all self-contained. It's got its generators in it. It's got everything. It's you know it's all you know all real wood, mahogany. I mean, big screen TVs, pop-outs. I'm all. What are these people thinking? And the contractors who are building these things are making a killing. I guarantee that thing costs that guy 20 grand to build, and he's made 100 grand off it. You know, I just. I shake my head. I just uh, don't do that, guys. I, that's why I have a chapter on. If you're thinking about doing, you know, living remotely, go buy a used travel trailer, test it out. You can get a good one for like ten thousand bucks. Yeah. You, you know, you get one even cheaper, but yeah. a good one's right. Used one's right around ten, fifteen. A good one. Yep. That's all season. That's not going to break down on yep. you. You know, go try it out. Go dry camp a little bit. Move around. Don't go out and buy a teeny home for seventy five, well, hundred grand. Let's say you even go budget with. I've seen someone they build for about fifty thousand dollars. You yeah. build that thing for fifty grand, and you decide you don't want it anymore, and you try to sell it. You're you're lucky to get twenty thousand dollars for it. 
if I you buy be lucky to sell it. Yeah, if you buy a brand new RV, you're going to lose your ass too. But you buy a used RV for ten, fifteen thousand dollars. You use it for a year, and you don't jack it up, and you decide that you don't like it. You'll sell it for about what you pay for it. Yeah. Well, not only that, but you're going to sell it quick. I, if oh, you yeah. buy a good quality travel trailer, fifth wheel. Yeah. I sold my last travel trailer in three days. Yeah. And I took like a thousand dollar hit on it. I mean, I sold it for a grand less than I paid. How long did you have it? I had that, I think, around two years. So you, had, years. You, you paid you paid $1,000 to use it for two years. And I lived in it. This, that was is, intelligent, I this is an intelligent investment. A yeah. $75,000 box on a trailer is not an intelligent investment. And they're not, they don't tow well. They're no. not safe. They are absolutely not safe. Compared to you know uh, an RV, they're not. Now I I will also give this a pass. I've seen like the stories of this 16 year old kid and he wanted his own room and he didn't have one, so he found a trailer and he built a tiny house in his mom's backyard. And then when he goes out on his own, he's going to throw it on a place and live off grid until he figures out what he's doing with his life. Brilliant. No problem. Yeah, Fine. That makes sense. He did it with me. salvage materials. He's a kid. He doesn't have to have a job. He just worked on it after school. Took a year to build it. He learned to trade. Wonderful. But I think this show, and, and I'll, I'll admit, it's a guilty pleasure. Dorothy and I watch this show. Oh, I do too. But we mock the shit out of the people in it. And, and I'll tell you what, when we see like a single guy do it, eh, if he wants to do it, fine. Or a single girl, you know, these people that are like, they're going to live in these homes. With, with two loft beds, and they got three kids, you think they need their head examined. Yeah. Right? I mean, you just... Yeah. Well, I guess you won't have any more kids. That's the upside of it. You're done if you do that, but, you know. Yeah, they got a dog, cat, two yeah. kids, and they're jammed in these things, and here's what an RV travel trailer fifth wheel has. It has pop-outs. Yeah. They get a lot bigger. Yeah. They get way bigger if you get, you know, three pop-outs. I have one. I have a 24-footer with a one, one pop-out. It's just me and my dog. But two people could live in it comfortably, no problem, and a dog. But you get a big fifth wheel. You get a 38, 40-foot big wheel, fifth wheel with uh, three pop-outs. Those things are huge, massive, and such better living conditions than those things. The, the, those, the, the tiny homes they build, those weigh over 10,000 pounds, and they're top-heavy. They're, they're built up. So you, if you're in the wind, that thing is going straight over. I'll guarantee it. I've towed in the wind. It sucks. I couldn't imagine towing a two-story friggin' wooden-framed friggin' teeny home behind a Subaru in a windstorm. You're you're gonna probably lose your life towing that thing. <laughs> you're at least gonna lose your teeny home. You're good at the ver and your Subaru because it's going with it. If that thing tips over, it's unless your tow hitch pops right off, your Subaru is going right along with it. So yeah, I mean, for me, I think. If you wanted to to do it and do it new, I've done that too. I've gone through these phases as you've seen, Jack. I now have a new travel trailer. I went through phases with my travel trailers because I live in it. I spend half the year living in the thing. I've lived in it for three and a half years now, three, three and a half years in a travel trailer. You know, then I, you know, I had a half ton. I've had three half ton trucks in my life. That wasn't working anymore. I was killing my half ton. It got terrible gas mileage. I finally went to a one ton diesel. So I've done these phases, and even with the one-ton new diesel, and it's a nice truck. You saw it, Jack. Oh, and my travel trailer, it is almost half the price of what those dumb 20-something-year-olds paid for their 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 uh, house on wheels. 
So let's stop kicking that horse. We beat the shit out of it like like three or four times now, right? kids, I know yeah. they're probably going, God, those guys are old men or jerks. Yeah. yeah, well, you do what you want now, guys, but we've, we've given you our opinion, and it's not based on uh, fairies and unicorn farts. But uh, what would you... What would you be like your main piece of advice to someone who's just getting started and wants to, you know, do this themselves? The first thing I would do is buy my book and get a bunch of copies for your friends. That's where I would start. Now, I, I, I honestly, though, I think buying a book or researching is a smart thing to do. Read other people's stories and kind of figure it out. I would say go subscribe to Backwoods Magazine, but God, they're not going to be around anymore. Yeah, you know, uh, they're not, but but Self-Reliance Magazine is basically yeah. the, the child the, of that. And I think yeah. it's a better magazine. I think, real quick on that, guys, yeah, Backwoods Home is calling it quits at the end of this year. And I've been reading that magazine for over 20 years, so it's kind of like a sad thing. But uh, it's really it's sad. You know, they got all what the anthologies and stuff like that. They'll still sell them through Self-Reliance. And I think they had to adapt to the digital age. Like, there's an entrepreneur yeah. lesson. We won't dig into there because we'll be there for an hour. But, like... So Dave Duffy's daughter basically launched uh, Self-Reliance Magazine as an, as an online magazine with a quarterly print magazine. And I think that in a day and age where every other homesteader has a blog, like they had to do that and they just couldn't keep, you know, if you think about it, I know you read it a long time too. Like when I was a teenager, I was reading that freaking magazine. And uh, I guess, no, I was like 21 when I first started reading it. Like that was how you got information back then. You bought magazines. Yep. There was yep. no internet. And, and today, the, the the print world is in, in a deep line of hurt. So, anyway, go on. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of that was a great resource. But self reliant magazines another good resource. Like I said again, I think not being just because I wrote, it, I think my good my book, just like my health book, is a great starter. If you want to know the ins and outs of how this really works, that's why I wrote it. But first part would be researching the land. That is probably the hardest part uh, between dealing with contractors and finding that initial piece of land. Because that land is really, really important in the fact that we talked about this before a lot too. Water. Most people don't think of water. If you don't have water on your property, you're camping. You're just a camp. You paid for a camping site is all you did. And I have neighbors who haul water. Hauling water sucks. It is not fun. It is not pleasant. It's heavy and it moves. It moves. It's dangerous. And you can't get it all year. When it's frozen, it's frozen. That's all there is to it. So I would just explore land and make sure uh, if you're a really good way is just to find a piece of land with a well already on it. That's already been tested, already been, you know, if you want to shortcut it, the downside is it comes with a serious upcharge. You're going to pay at least double what that well cost, more than likely, to have put in when it was put in. That's just part of the deal. But that's the safest way to go. You know you got water. You know what? how many gallons per minute you're getting. It's been tested. It's already done. But that's what I would spend most of my time is researching the different parts of the country and what type of land I want. And don't do it like a lot of people do who decide they want to move to Montana, Idaho, Washington, Wyoming, Utah, wherever, Colorado. Show up, buy a piece of land, and just go, and that's it. They've never really even been there. Go to each area you're interested in and spend a vacation there. Get to know the town. That's what I did. I got to know the area. I, I spent quite a bit of time in the area because just like different parts of a city where you probably wouldn't want to live, there's different parts of the country. And I'm not saying this in a negative way. It's just not a good fit. It just doesn't have the things you're looking for. Maybe the people aren't really open to outsiders. There's some pretty hostile towns. I grew up in one of them. 
If I was an outsider, I wouldn't move into the town I grew up in if I was from somewhere else. Just to say that. Even today, I would not do it. You know, where so, I grew up, I had this discussion with my dad when I started to realize this about certain places in Appalachians. And I oh, said, yeah. he said, well, you grew up in a place like that. I'm like, no, I didn't. He goes, well, you're from here. I said, but we came here from Florida. He said, but the family's from here. I said, but I never saw it happen to anybody else. He said, nobody else comes here. Yep. And it kind of sinks in on you. You realized it like you actually lived in a place where almost nobody moved to. Yeah. You know, it was, it's a weird thing, but it is, there is and places like that. There are places like that. And if you're, and right now, if you're from out of state going to a place that is getting an influx of people, you're going to get some heat. I mean, it's pissing those people off. Especially I mean, if you're from California. Oh, if you're from California, forget it. Yeah, I had to go in. Don't you know you suck? Well, yeah, I had to explain myself to him. Go, no, no, no. I grew up in a town the same size as this. I'm a small town guy. Yeah. I went, I'm not one of those flat. I didn't come from L.A. I'm not a guy that shows up in his bedazzled tight jeans and his BMW and his poodle and his wife who's looking for the mall. I'm not that guy. I'm not that. And they go, thank God, because we cannot stand those people. And I go, I can't either. That's why, why I left. Yeah. That's why I left, you know, and that's why, you know, and I've had actually where I live, I love the area. The people are fantastic. It, it fits into everything that I like, but that's why I picked that part of the country. And that's the biggest thing too is research it. Make sure you're researching what you're doing because this is a big move. You know, this is a, a life altering move. There's a lot of pieces that you got to figure out behind. You know, if you're a normal, you know, normal person in the United States today, you got a bunch of crap that you got to get rid of. You got a house that's too big. You got to sell that. You got to figure out, you know, you're probably going to have to rent in between. You, you know, you, if you have kids, you got to figure out a lot of stuff. So I would just recommend take your time and don't rush into it. And that's why I'm a big fan of the travel trailer. Go out and buy a travel trailer. Go take that thing out. Go, you know, adventuring. If you like a place a thousand miles away, Tow that thing out there, stay out there for a rent one, fly out there or drive out there, rent a travel trailer and live in the area, test it out, see how it is. And if you like it, go back, go back one more time, maybe two more times, get to know some people and go, okay, I found my place. Cause I'll tell you, I've heard more stories of people who failed by far than succeeded. Most people get there, they change their whole life around. They don't like it. The people don't like them. They don't like the place. It's cold and they leave. And there's a ton of half built houses. If you go look on a, a Zillow lookout in remote areas, you'll find a ton of half built cabins, half finished houses. They're all out there. And those are all the people who flamed out, who did it wrong. So I don't know. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, I mean, Heck, you've been around the block a couple times. Yeah, I mean, I've done whole shows on this, and I think one of the best things you said is you got to go to these places. And you don't go to the parts of them that all the people that are on vacation go to. You're on vacation, but you have to act like you're living there, and you have to integrate yourself into society. And when you start looking at land, you got to find out who your neighbors are and what they are and what they're not okay with. When we yep. bought our place in Arkansas, we're standing out back, and all of a sudden I hear a couple gunshots go off from the neighbor up the road. And my real estate agent cringes because she doesn't know how I'm going to react to this. Well, I was happy because that meant I could shoot my gun too and no one would bitch. Yep. They did what was expected, <laughs> right? Like, because, I mean, I remember we were, we were in Tennessee one time on vacation and uh, somebody was probably a hunter or something. It was a couple of shots. It sounded like somebody taking like two shots at a, a grouse or something, but it was near the, uh, 
one of these uh, Civil War areas, you know, the, the, where the tourists go and all, and that's where we were at. I don't even think it was on the property. It was just probably adjacent property, and it was probably totally okay. Like five minutes later, this police officer stops and asks us if we heard the shots and if we knew where they came from. They're investigating it because somebody called. This is rural freaking Tennessee. Ugh. But because it was near a place where yuppies go, you know, once it, it doesn't matter if the, cop, if the cops probably like, I don't want to do this. But once somebody calls 911, they have to respond. And uh, you've you got to know if you're going to be dealing with things like that. Even if something is okay legally, is there going to be somebody that makes a problem for you in what you want to do? I, I'm a big fan is, of your suggestion to look at the cabin kits. Assuming you can get the materials in easily, bang for the buck, square footage, yeah. the, the thick deal. walls, all of that stuff. And unlike a lot of these other structures there's a whole shitload of guys who know how to put them together and they're yes. pretty much designed yeah. to go together you pick out your windows and your interiors and boom you're you're in business um those are those are things and then i would also say like be sure this is really for you because we didn't go off grid but we went we went we went off grid on grid right we were in the sticks we were in a place where every i swear to god everybody that came to see us when they finally got to our house They felt like they were seven miles on dirt road and they were three. And everybody made the same joke. I heard banjo music, right? <laughs> and I loved it out there. My wife, not so much. So, like, if you're doing this as a couple or a family, you got to go get some experience with it and, and then really, like, let the novelty not woo you. And Because and, and, a lot of people, if you want your homestead and all, I'll tell you where I live now is pretty good. I call it, like, the, the urban rural fringe Right, yeah. we're just yeah. far off enough out of that beltway of yuppies, and I mean the yuppies are—you've been here. The yuppies oh, yeah. are two miles down the road, and they can't do shit about us. They, they're out of luck. <laughs> Go away. But we can sell stuff off our farm to those yuppies, and if well, we want to go to a yeah. nice restaurant, so like make sure this is for you before you make this massive investment. And I think that's why things like your book—it's a real look at what it takes. And that way you can make that part of your decision-making process. Well, and I think that's what, in the end, when I started, I started documenting it. But then that's, like I said, I started realizing that people had all these questions. And they're the same questions I had. And I didn't have anywhere to go. I just basically had to figure it out. And it was a pain in the ass. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I think, you know, spending 16 bucks on my book will save you at least thousands of dollars. And that's what I look at. I go, God, I wish someone would have wrote this before so I could have read something like this. And it would have made my life a little easier because um, I tried to make it generalized to where it, it works for almost everyone. You know, it, whatever you're looking at, it sh you should be able to pick something out of it that's helpful. And, and I, I've been to your pro – I drove out last time, and I've been to Fort Worth numerous, numerous times during my government career. Spent a lot of time in Texas. And I'm telling you, for what you do, it is obvious you thought it out very well. Anyone who's been to one of Jack's workshops knows – That the way he set his stuff up is exactly the way he needed to set it up. It works perfectly. I mean, if anyone wants to look at a thought process on how someone thinks it through, I would highly recommend going to one of Jack's workshops and checking out how he set everything up. I really would just for that alone. Because you do workshops, you, need, you run a business, and you pick the property to fit that. And you're married. You know, you need to be able to get to stuff. And you're right. I, I'd head right down, uh, what is it, the, uh, oh, what's that highway right there? 35? Uh, oh, the John Jacksboro. Lear, Jacksboro whatever. Highway. 
Yeah, and you head right there, and you're in Maine. You know, you're right on the fringe of Maine, Fort Worth, and you're in restaurants, shopping centers. Everything's right there. So, but un unincorporated is the key, and like so that fit me. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, don't do what I did. Don't do what Gary did. Go out and research every option that's available for you, and then make a determination which most fits your lifestyle desires, your dreams, and your long-term plans. And understand that when we look at what we call a scale of permanence. The, the, the two most permanent things on the planet are mountains and government, right? So scale of permanence is what does it take to change that? So if, if you look at a piece of land and there's a little lip and a bubble on it of, of a hill and uh, you want to put a house there and it's not flat enough, a bulldozer in a day and you got a flat spot, the scale yeah. of permanence there is pretty low. If it's a regulation or it's an actual mountaintop, then the scale of permanence is high. And if, if that is something that prevents you from doing what you really want, keep looking until you find what you know something that doesn't have that problem because you'll say, oh, I can, I'll be okay with this, and you won't. You'll find yourself after four or five years invested into your homestead going, I really wanted this, and you'll be putting it up for sale. And if you plan that way, Like, I don't know if you've been reading the new Self-Reliance magazine. There's this dude, uh, I can't think of his name. It's a, like kind of a long Shalangayan name or something like that. But he, it's called My Life in a Shed. And Ooh. every edition he has a new thing. And he built this shed, tiny house, homestead up. And then he went to a bigger shed. And then he like did the whole thing and gardened it all. And then he sold it. Now he's starting over and doing an even bigger project. Well, he planned to do that from the beginning. So if you want to use like the homestead step method, just make sure you know what you're doing because and even if you're planning on doing it, you better think about it. I'll tell you what, when you walk away from garden beds that you put eight years into and you can yeah. stick your arm down to your elbow in them and like you can throw a seed at them from the window and it grows and it took eight years to do that, it's hard. It's hard yeah. even when you're going to something better. So really try to find what you want the first time. Take your time. Well, you got the rest of your life once you do it. Well, and you just made a good point too is that you probably only have one or two of these in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it takes a lot of commitment, takes a lot of time. Like my property, I'm in love with it. I mean, there, I have no desire to leave until I'm so old that I can't get up there anymore. Is my attitude. And and people ask me, they go, "Well, you plan to be there all year?" And I go, "Well, yes and no." I went, "That's going to take a couple years for me to get another structure down below. I need a snow machine, and it's gonna. I'm gonna have to plan to be there all year long. I'm just trying to get everything, you know, phase one done right now." I'm worried about that. So I'm leaving and I love going around and traveling in my travel trailer and screwing around during the winter and getting away from the cold weather. I go, but is that where I'm going full time of it? I don't know, but I planned for it. I planned it that way, but I only, you know, even with that, if I had to flip and do all this over again, holy God, yeah. I don't know if I got, I don't yeah. know if I got it in me. I don't think I got another one in me, honestly. No, it, it's a lot of work. And, and I, you know, self-reliant, I, I subscribe. I haven't even got my first magazine yet. Ugh. I've been waiting for it because I, I always held off because I'm like you, I'm a backwoods guy. Yeah. So I always was there and there's a couple others that I've read, Pioneer and a couple others over the years. And, and Mother Earth News has been around forever. Um, I think that's the first one I read as as a youngster. I, I did too. I I used to love Mother Earth News in the '80s and even the early yeah. '90s. And then like I don't know, Social Justice Warriors took it over or something. It, it, it's got it, it's it, you can't read an article in it without the word climate change in it. And I I don't care how you come down on that article. 
or on that 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 uh, that issue. I'm fine with that. But you can't attach it to every single thing in life. Sometimes taking a dump in the woods is just taking a dump in the woods, and sometimes growing a garden is just growing a garden. Not everything has to be politicized, and it, yeah. it lost something. Yeah. It had a it had a kind of a It used to be more like there's a magazine now that's actually pretty good called Grit, and oh, and it's yeah, I've heard it, of that. it's a lot like the old Mother. It's not quite like, but it's a lot like it. Like I remember reading articles in Mother Earth News about this guy that was making like fifty grand a year selling frogs out of some ponds, you know, and and it yep. and this was like in in the late seventies, early eighties. So that was good money. And Mother Earth News used to do stuff like that, and. It really was when I found backwoods. That's when I went, okay, this is going away, and this is this is you know this where's this been all my life type of thing. Because I found it when we moved to uh, to Texas. It's it's funny. I uh, first it was the first magazine I ever subscribed to as a grown up where I paid my own subscription. Uh, it was Twenty uh, One Just Out of the Army, and uh, I I lived with a friend, and I was like a mile from the mall, and my car that I drove here broke literally broke down the day I got here. And it was a, a big enough problem with the limited funds I had at the time, and it was a, it was a few months before I could actually fix it. So I would walk to the mall, and I had no job. You know, I was on what was left of my unemployment, and there was a Barnes and Noble back in the day where they had the big chairs and all. So I'd sit there and read books and I'd buy a coffee, so I wasn't a bum. And I found that magazine there. And when I got my first job in Texas, I immediately subscribed to it. I've been a subscriber since then, so it's kind of a kind of a hard thing to see something that you've been part of that long go away. Well, it's sad, and that's kind of they're they're all older, you know. They've been yeah, doing it a long time. That's true. And it's too. neat to see that their offspring are carrying it on in Self Reliance magazine. But I, you're right. I think that was a valuable lesson of things just changed too quickly for the magazine. Yeah. And they they didn't catch it quick enough because I still think there is a desire for print, but I think what happened is they maybe didn't change their print structure to make it more affordable. Yeah, and to figure that they've probably been using the same printer for 30 years or yeah. whatever, 28 years. Yeah, and I, you know, and probably didn't look, and it became too late, or didn't look into maybe even, you know, find a print on demand or something. Well, and they were selling that, you know, it's like a, a two month thing, so it's like six of them a year, and yeah. they went to this quarterly model. But the quarterlies they're putting out now are probably more than two of the of the backwoods as far as content. Yeah. And it's more production value, glossy images, things like that. So it's probably costing them less to deliver a subscription, but they could charge a little more for it, and the customer gets a little more. Well, you know what I thought it, more thought of it was was they're probably tired too. Yeah, that's they've been doing true. this a long time, you know. And yeah. they're like, you know what? We've done our job. We we busted our butt because you know putting out a print magazine. I've had friends who have done print magazines. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a ton of work. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it either. I, I wouldn't. And so I, I like that, you know, I, I get where they're coming from. But as a, as a reader, I'm a, I'm an old guy too. So I like physical books. I like, you know, people want my books in Audible and I'm all, God, I don't have enough time to sit down and read my own book word for word <laughs> and record it. I would love to do that. I hope I can do it in the future. But yeah, it's like there's so many different streams and avenues of getting information today. And I think that's what's making homesteading and making going off, living off the grid and living more remotely more palatable. Problem is you're not getting good information a lot of times. And that's why I always looked at backwoods. I knew I was getting a straight deal. I wasn't yeah. getting any bullshit. 
Yeah. You know, and that's the hard part about it too is that I hope people understand that, you know, my book's no bullshit. If it's in there, I did it. Yeah. I either had to deal with it or I did it. You know, and on I'm your a- comment that maybe they're just tired, it is 28 years. It is. 1989 yeah. was the first edition of Backwoods Home and they did, they did that for 28 years. That's uh That's a run. That's a long run. You know, if you think about the average person's career, and when you go into something like magazine publishing, you usually don't do it at 18. You're just at a point of retirement, maybe. I'll talk to Dave and find out, find out well, you know, if it was just a financial decision or were they just ready to do something else with their lives and maybe walk the beach for a while. And I'll ask him where your freaking subscription is. Probably because it's a quarterly. You probably ordered right at the cutoff. I the probably edition. did. Yeah. Well, and they're transferring your, your subscription to self-reliance. So I have more backwards because I think I buy like three years, two, oh, three okay. years at a time. And yeah. it's transferring over, but I've only thumbed through the self-reliant mag. I've never had one. Yeah. I always liked it, but I'm like, probably like you. I have a hard time having time to read most yeah. of the time. Yeah. So I pick one magazine, and that's the one I picked. And I said – I used to read uh, Outside Magazine, but it became some ultra-liberal left-wing you know, climate change thing too, yeah. every article. So I had to give up on that one too. So, but so- yeah, I, yeah. I was say we're we're kind of running this out. Uh, tell people a little bit about maybe your your future projects and uh, and primal power method. Most of the audience is pretty familiar with that, but give them a little quick overview and and what's coming next from Gary. Yeah, I actually I'm starting a podcast. Uh, we actually started me and a buddy. We went to boot camp together. You like this, Jack? And he was in a school in Pensacola. I was in a school in Corey Station, Pensacola. So we've known each other uh, ever since boot camp, and we're calling it Old Dudes New Tricks. We have uh, it's not going to be on the primal side. Uh, it will have stuff in there. There's going to be health. It's it's more of just old, dealing with old guy issues and getting older and and shortcuts and how to improve your life and health. So I got that going on. We have the first two episodes I think are up right now. Be patient, as Jack knows. He started a podcast a long time ago. This is a learning process. A lot of people have been asking me to do this. I haven't had time. I finally am going to suck it up and go do it. So we have that going. Um, Primal Power Method's still going. I still sell my supplements, my health books. And like I said, I'm looking at it as kind of an evolution. So you guys are going to see another book coming out. I have the manuscript done that's going to kind of wrap it all together. I'm going to tie all of the pieces together for you. And that will be the next book. Um, also... Hopefully, I may put add some more supplements. I'm de- deciding if I want to do that or not. Um, there's five more that I might put on the website. So there's stuff coming up. Uh, I like the writing. Um, writing's kind of my passion. Unfortunately, running a business and everything else, I'm not technically a writer because I can't focus on it. I'm focusing on a whole bunch of other stuff. But uh, books will continue to come out. Um, uh, health. I, I, I know I wouldn't do it, but I think I am going to come out with another health book. Um, I'm going to come out with a, a little more uh, detailed kind of a, a go-by with a template, but don't be waiting for that one. That one's going to take a while. But, yeah, that's that's basically what I'm doing, and I'll be roaming around the country as usual, uh, head back up to the property here in about a month, month and a week, depending on the snow level, and I'll jump right back into the property and try and finish some stuff off. And I'll be documenting all on YouTube. I'll record all of it. I'm trying to get better at that. Um So yeah, it's 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 going good, and I really appreciate all the people's support. Um, one thing I do ask is if you guys would review my book on Amazon, I'd really appreciate it. As, as Jack knows, as a as a guy who self publishes and does that so he can control the content, 
Amazon reviews are tough to get as a, as a self-published guy. I don't buy them. I don't have a publishing company that does them for me. You know, I, all these are from you guys. So I would really appreciate you if you, if you like the book, you'd go out. And if you don't like it, hey, give your opinion. I don't care. And so, yeah, that's about it. Same old stuff on the, uh, the council still answering all those health questions, which are always good. So, yeah. Very cool. And I mean, I think that like from today's episode, folks, if you have some off grid questions for Gary, I'm sure you'd like those as well. And yeah. dude, I appreciate you being with us today and I appreciate the work you do on the council and, and all the good stuff you put out. And, and thank you for being with us today, man. Oh, thanks for having me, Jack. You're the guy who found me. So I, I appreciate you bringing me into the community as I was floundering around in Gary's world. So well, it was our, it was our, it was our mutual hatred for, uh, what's your name? Sally Fallon. And, yeah, uh, her yeah. misappropriation of the name of the good name of Dr. Weston Price that uh, that brought us together. So sometimes yes. good good relationships come from from bad things. <laughs> from people pissing you off. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, Gary. I hope you have a great day. You too. Thanks, Jack. All right, guys, I always enjoy talking with Gary. And if you enjoyed this show and you enjoy the podcast on a regular basis, remember that you can support us, and you can do that simply by doing your shopping on Amazon through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That's right, the politically incorrect tspaz.com. Uh, you go there, and uh, you'll see a link. You click that, you go to Amazon, buy your stuff, including Gary's great new book that's out. And Guys, really, if you buy Gary's book, please leave him a review. I just left him a review yesterday. Um, really, he's a great guy. He does a lot for us here at TSP, and reviews are so important to authors. But while you're there, if you're going to be buying anything, including Gary's book, just go to tspaz.com first, and you will help support the show. You won't play, pay a Jack Spearco surcharge or something like that. It won't cost you anything extra. Your shipping, everything will be the same, but you'll support us painlessly. I do have uh, items for review every day on tspaz.com for you, though. And today's is the Max Boost International Travel Adapter Kit. Uh, what the heck is that? Basically, it's a power strip. Uh, it's a cool little uh, high-quality power strip. It's got four uh, AC ports, and it's got five USB ports on it. It's also got adapters for uh, US to UK, U.S. to AU and U.S. to EU. So basically anywhere you travel internationally with it, it'll work as well. And it actually works. I've read reviews on some other ones of these things that people, yeah, it worked until I plugged it in, you know, overseas, and then it smoke came out of it. You won't find any reviews like that about the Max Boost. In fact, uh, it has an average five-star review, which is very high for an electronic device. Because, well, when you have an electronic device, even one that's simple, there's always simple tins that can't work it, and they give it negative reviews, or they give it negative reviews because the mailman screwed up or something like that. Anyway, um, this one's got great reviews. I own it myself. It lives in my travel bag. I don't really use the international plugs. They're there if I ever do travel internationally. I pretty much travel domestically. I don't have time to travel internationally. Um, but it's the same thing every time you check into a hotel. You're there, your wife's there, and God, when I was still had a, you know, a son that traveled with us, everybody's got their devices. There's maybe one plug at the lamp and maybe one USB port, and everybody wants their phone and tablet and stuff like that. And you just plug this thing in, and there's enough room for everyone. And I keep a little orange three-way. Uh, John Dowie calls it an orange friggin' three-way Stephen Harris friggin' thing, uh, which is basically a solid orange splitter plug. I have a link to what those look like in the, the article as well. 
And so if you check into a hotel and like the place you want to put your power station, there's like a lamp there or something or a TV you want to use, where you can reach back and unplug that device, throw your little splitter in, plug plug this thing into it, plug the original device back into it, and set your power station up. And everybody can charge their stuff. It's just convenient. And I also use it when I stay, you know, at people's houses. A lot of times it can be a guest room. It's really not set up for, you know, you conduct business. But this little thing, you got your power station set up, you know, You can either do, you know, do business on the bed or if there's a desk in there or something like that. You got all your devices charged so you can stay, you know, in business on the road. It's a great tool. And you know what it costs? It's 20 bucks. There's ones out there twice as much with shitty reviews. This one's 20 bucks. I've had mine quite a while. I'm very happy with it. Again, it and a Stephen Harris three-way orange splitter freaking thing live in my bag. And that way, wherever I go, I, when I, you know, once I finally check in, I've got, That type of capability. I also used it in an airport one time. So I was at an airport where like all the charging stations are just crammed and people are waiting to charge their device. But there was a, an AC adapter plugged into one. And I asked the guy, hey man, can I, can I plug this in? I'll plug you into mine. He's like, yeah, sure. So I plug it in. All of a sudden, here's all these other ports. So I had, I had friends, you know, instant friends that way, letting other people use it. So it's, it's a, it's a good tool. It's a good disaster planning tool for things like that as well if you're going to be helping others charge their devices. Check it out today. It's called Max Boost International Travel Adapter Kit. You'll find it in all my other reviews at T-SPAS. And please continue to do your Amazon shopping through T-SPAS. That helps us so much. That brings us to our song of the day today. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, as I've said, we're in the, the golden age of rock and roll for America right now. And... Um, it's not like rock and roll's gone, but it's not a rock and roll song that made number one song of the year this year. I mean, this is a freaking year that Johnny B. Good was released. Can you imagine that? And, and that song lost out to this one. And when I was looking it up, I'm like, what the hell song is that? I, I was like, I must have never heard that song. And, and I have to say, since we started doing this, there's not been a number one song of the year that I had never heard. And usually, even if it wasn't one I liked, I'd heard it. And when I read the name of it, I was like, oh, that song. Um, even when they were, you know, almost, what, 80 years old. Well, this one, I'm like, I don't know. As soon as it started playing, I went, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that. Never cared for it much. Um, never really paid attention to it. It's the story of death and execution. And the song's called Tom Dooley. Now, if you're a fan of the show and you listen every day, you know that I said we would end the decade with the most upbeat, optimistic song about murder that uh, that you'd ever hear. And you're going, but Jack, it's it's 1950-freaking-8, isn't it, buddy? So this can't be that song. It's not. Though it is kind of folksy and upbeat, folksy music for talking about what it's talking about. And it's a weird thing to me, because two years in a row here, we're going to have a And the next one's even worse. It's more upbeat. It's closer to rock and roll. It's more like rock pop, right, for the era. Uh, I won't tell you what it is. You'll have to tune in tomorrow to find out what it is. But America's got a weird vibe in it in 1958. Maybe it was the, 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 the constant concern about global thermal nuclear war that had a somewhat of a fatalist thing. And when you have a fatalist mindset sometimes and you think that death might be imminent, sometimes what we do is we make fun of death. And we might make fun of death by writing songs about it. I'm not sure. This song also kind of goes back to what we were seeing at the beginning of the decade with 
a bit of a, the, the, the roots of, of modern country in it. It is the story uh, that, that would be typical of, of, let's say, country music in the next 10, 15 years. Maybe it would be formatted a little differently, but it's kind of like a folk pop rock crossover, I guess. I'm not really familiar with music of the 1950s, other than a few songs I really liked, which most of them didn't seem to make the number one song. But uh, this one, I'm, I'm not fading into it, because it's got some narration at the beginning that I want you to hear that kind of sets the stage for it. And uh, it's by a band called the Kingston Trio, and again, the song's called Tom Dooley. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, Condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're bound to die. I met her on the mountain There I took her life Met her on the mountain Stabbed her with my knife Hang down your head, Tom, Julie Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom, Julie Poor boy, you're bound to die This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't it been for Grayson, I'd have been in Tennessee. Well now, boy, hang down your head, hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head and cry. Oh boy, you're bound to die. Tomorrow, reckon where I'll be Down in some lonesome valley Hanging from a white oak tree Hang down your head, Tom, to leave Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom, to leave Poor boy, you're bound to die Oh, well, now, boy Boy, you're bound to die. Oh, well, now, boy, hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're bound to die. Poor boy, you're bound to die. Poor boy, you're bound to die. Poor boy, you're bound